0: Hey everyone, wherever you are, hope you're having a wonderful week. So far, we're here with the latest episode of the Inside Crypto Show, interviews and discussions with regular people just like yourselves. Today, we are joined by Sherry Jiang, co-founder and CEO of Bluejay Finance, a stablecoin-based fixed income platform that connects on-chain liquidity with real-world assets like private credit. Her background in big tech includes her experience as a product marketing manager at Google, which allows her a unique approach to the investment industry. Sherry, thank you so much for making time. Let's talk about your background a little bit.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Kryon, for having me on the show. So I'm Sherry. I am originally from the U.S., but I moved over to Singapore actually about five years ago with Google, my previous company, to work on the opportunity that was really exciting at the time, which is growing the payments industry within Asia slash emerging markets. So I actually worked on payments for India and basically grew it from a new product to over 100 million users in just about three years. And that was actually possible because effectively digital payments leapfrog credit cards. So people went from cash to digital and were able to fundamentally change the way they pay. Remittance, for example, became available and easy to do from just the comforts of your couch in your living room. During my time with Google Pay, I learned about the endless possibilities that digital has to basically make finance a lot more inclusive. But I also felt really frustrated in some ways of having to always work with the existing infrastructure because you're still just an app layer on top of like banking rails. And so that's actually what drew me to crypto in the first place, basically re-envisioning what our financial system can be when you don't have to worry about these legacy systems being connected. And that's the genesis of BlueJay. I met my co-founders actually through an accelerator program based here in singapore called entrepreneur first and we did a couple different iterations of our product from a crypto remittance company to then a stable coin based platform to now this fixed income platform which is connecting private market assets like private credit that are typically less accessible to the public. We're connecting it to the on-chain world to make it easier for more investors to be able to access these instruments and be able to hopefully have a greater tool set to achieve financial freedom and their financial goals. I'm still very much passionate about the same things that brought me over to Singapore in the first place. Asia is a huge market when it comes to credit. There's a lot of capital that is demanded, but less supply, but not enough being supplied and a growing investor base across the board in all the different countries. So I'm truly excited about the opportunity and truly excited to hopefully take a crack at building a real long-term use case for crypto beyond just some of the more speculative trading activities.
0: Nice. That's like a perfect introduction. Sherry, like you said, you went through various iterations and what made you decide on the current iteration as this is it, this is the thing we're going to go with and expand with?
1: Yeah. If you talk to any founders, their journey is not linear a lot of the time. It's got different bends and curves, and there's always a bit of a logical progression that come with it. So with the recent move towards creating this on-chain asset management platform, it really came about when we were doing a deep dive on stablecoin use cases. So just a bit of background, the first launched product that we had out there is a stablecoin platform that allows people to mint a synthetic version of the Singapore dollar, and it's basically backed by crypto assets and you can use it to trade. It matches the value of the Singapore dollar, etc. And so this is a platform business, right? So think of it as the Google Play Store looking for new apps or it is Android looking for new OEMs, it's a platform business. So you have to be very much in tune with what applications would use your stable coins, all right? And so that's actually where we fell into the rabbit hole of what I think the industry calls real world assets. I look specifically at the on-chain credit part of real-world assets, but that was a space that was very fascinating to me because the first company I was looking at, this is over a year ago, this company called Goldfinch. And I saw that they were doing credit actually for emerging markets, but facilitated through USDC and other stable coins on-chain. And the reason why this actually spoke to me a lot is because I know that Credit is a big opportunity that the Google Pay team was trying to work on because there's millions and millions of SMBs driving basically 90% of the GDP of India, but they don't have enough options for financing because a lot of them, they don't have a digital footprint, right? And so I think that kind of mission really spoke to me in a way, and it's also a good business opportunity. And when those things collide, that's when I know I want to work on it, the commercial and the social impact. But I think as we were developing out the use case from an integration standpoint for our stablecoin, we realized there was actually a really big opportunity to actually create this specifically for Asia. Create this asset management platform that actually brings in these different private market opportunities like private credit onto the blockchain, especially being based in Singapore and connected with the broader financial ecosystem here. So that's the evolution of how we got to the stablecoin piece, to the asset management side. It definitely followed like the areas that we were exploring and investigating when we were still working on the previous model.
0: Okay, good. Great explanation. And you were in Singapore, right? And um, yeah. I asked you before the show, I'm like, can we talk about some of this? And I know The last like 12 months or so has been a bit of a whirlwind in terms of regulation here in in Asia, right? In Taiwan as well, where we're going forward with regulation, but maybe not as as terrible as it is in the States, of course, being all over the web with Coinbase and Binance and Binance US. And I mean, there's also Singapore as well, because I remember seeing (laughs) Singapore clamping down a little bit and I remind everyone, you're not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer. So you can only speak as, as much as you're able to about such things. So... What's your take on all of this and how's this impacting what you're doing with BlueJay?
1: So before I say any of this, I always say I am not a lawyer. This is not any legal advice, but this is just observations based on my own layman understanding of it, or at least from my own kind of adjacent understanding. So let's start with Singapore and then I can talk about the US, which I think is a whole other discussion here. Just for the audience's background, a lot of the disastrous collapses in crypto Last year in 2022 happened to Singapore-based companies or happened to users that are based in Singapore. That includes Terra Luna with Terraform Labs, that includes Three Arrows Capital and also includes FTX because surprisingly 5% of FTX users before were all actually based in Singapore because it was very difficult to use other on and off ramps and exchanges like Binance. And so a lot of Singapore users were affected. And so naturally, if you're a regulator, this is going to ring some alarm bells, right? You're going to want to spur into some kind of action. And so there was a set of comprehensive consultation papers that were created towards the end of last year, which gives some light into how they're thinking about like where we move forward with this. There's a few things that came out. I think number one is that there's a very like big focus on avoiding commingling funds that are used as payment banks for particular purposes and then funds that are used for lending and investment purposes. So this is something that was called out specifically in the DPT or the digital payment token paper. The other part that the Singapore regulators care a lot about is actually protecting retail customers as well. This is To be honest, something that I think is rings true as well for traditional finance and traditional financial products. But the thing that irked, I think, the government the most here is uh, not just the well-off people that were affected, but the everyday man on the street, right? We're talking about people who bought UST and put it into anchor protocol, which gave you 20% APY, which is 100% not sustainable, right? This was everyday people that lost money. People talked about very dark stuff, honestly, if you looked at the Telegram chats to FTX, where you have people who actually put their savings in FTX, right? They thought that the yields generated on the platform were much safer than DeFi, where all the hacks happened and all of that. And then again, everyday people lost money. And so these are the people that the government really cares about and really focuses on protecting uh, as investors. Now, generally speaking, I, I do feel like Singapore is pro-innovation, which is different from the US, I feel, and I'll get to that point in a second, but they still want builders to come in. They still want capital to be here, but within a set of guardrails that they believe is in the best interest of protecting the public. Now, does that lead to them protecting overly and in a way that can be challenging to navigate? Of course, but it's hard when you're not working at the company on a day-to-day basis to actually regulate. And I think that They've done a pretty good job of it so far, and the consultation papers have given me hope that they really do actually understand what they're talking about. Overall, I'd say I'm positive with some degree of understanding of where their conservatism might come from when it comes to commingling different types of funds as well as retail users. Now, let's go on to the US. Now, it's funny being an American commenting all of this stuff, so I'm just gonna provide a perspective that I observe being now outside of the country for a couple of years, right? The US has been a place where there's governmental interest and I think in protecting the hegemony of the dollar, right? Ever since I believe Bretton Woods, dollar dominance has really been something that we see day to day. It's how global trade happens, all of that. Now, all of a sudden you have this system crypto, blockchain, DLT, whatever, come in and potentially pose a threat to that hegemonic position that or that position that they have and having a strong U.S. dollar being used for everything, right? And so to me, this is the underlying sentiment. I don't always think it's about protecting the public interest in the same kind of vein as Singapore. And you notice it in the way that they're actually tackling some of the Wells notices and uh, people that they're going after. Coinbase, I'll give an example, right? So they've recently come under fire a lot by the SEC. And if you know anything about Brian Armstrong or the leadership team, they've been trying really hard to be compliant for the longest time ever. And they've purposely made trade-off decisions to grow slower than other said players who maybe play a little bit faster and looser with rules they purposely did this to be compliant and literally will go and say, hey, tell us how we can be regulated, right? And they're still getting these uh, Wells notices and notice from, from the government. And sometimes it's really hard to tell what the consistent messaging is, right? It seems like anything could be defined as a security and any service that has an app interface that has something that they think is a security means you're a security broker and you're just breaking the rules. You can say anything, right? So it, it feels like it's a less principle-based approach and more of a move to reassert authority in the face of a threat. And if you think about this geopolitically, it makes sense in a way because Singapore, we're a hub, and it needs global commerce to survive. And the Singapore dollar like, is strong, but it's not the most widely used currency in the world, right? It benefits from being this hub Th- this financial center. And so if part of the future of finance is within this new kind of tech layer, it's in their interest to do. So those are just some of my thoughts. Again, opinions. I'm also not a lawyer. And I do understand that everyone is trying to do what they think is the right thing to do. And this is just how I think about this, everything that's happened on the Rex front in the last few months.
0: That's a great summary. Sherry, you've said a lot. And I think let's jump back onto the Blue Jay finance wagon. I had a look at the website. It was awesome and interesting and really exciting in terms of all the information there, some of the ideas behind it, some of the like the projects that are already connected on there. For people who are listening to this, they're like, okay, this is interesting. I like what she's saying. Tell us about Bluejay. Where should people start?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I think people should start by asking a question to themselves of, do you feel right now you have all the choices in front of you to be able to protect your wealth, to grow in the way that's meaningful to you? Whether you set aside money and you're like, okay, I want to put this in ETFs, but now ETFs crashed 20% last year. What do I do now? So really the first place to start is what am I looking for as a user to improve my financial options, if you may? And that's really where Blue Jay comes into play, right? I described a bit earlier like what we do, but what we're trying to solve is basically the problem of financial access and freedom. There are tons of family offices and institutions out there in the world investing in above market return type of assets. And they've been doing it for decades, where most people, normal people don't even maybe even know of some of these because it's an old boys club for this person, your cousins with that person. You went to college with that person at that fund and somehow you get 13 percent annualized return because you know them and you have maybe a million dollars standing or sitting around and you can invest. This is how that the alternative assets or the private market assets industry works today. It's very much old school. What we're trying to solve is democratizing this and just making it possible so you can be able to access the same kind of superhuman powers that these guys have to determine what's right for you for your finances. Now, how this actually works is a it's a web app, right? Pretty simple. It looks similar to maybe even any kind of fintech product, brokerage account. I guess in the States, people use things like Wealthfront or it's really quite similar to them, you can take a look at different investment opportunities that are listed to see which ones fit your profile or your risk reward appetite. So the one that we listed in the beginning is actually a a fintech fund based here in Southeast Asia that's backed by a major sovereign fund here. And they have a 10% annualized return opportunity that's spread across different small cap companies within the region. And so when you put your funds in, deposit in, then you get that return on a quarterly basis and then your principal back in 12 months. So this is what most I would say, like the texture of most private credit deals that involve more short term financing looks a bit like this, right? For all investors that want to learn more about investing, investing that particular asset class, I always tell them, like, do your due diligence. Don't just do it because Sherry said so or our other co-founder says. Dig into who the manager is. There's a whole data room that we have set up where you can actually see the fund, see their performance. Who are their backers? Who are the companies they fund? What's the structure? How is it collateral? And again understand it is complicated, but you should fully do your due diligence. And then we provide the toolkit as well for you to connect with other people to learn. So that's why we have resources online through our own medium page. And we have stuff on LinkedIn published to explain the basics of investing into private credit. And then we also have a telegram group currently going on with over a hundred people in there where we actually have quite a few private credit professionals or ex-private credit professionals there where you can Basically ask them any question and learn, right? Due diligence isn't just presenting the information, but also presenting the means for somebody to learn more. Getting started really starts with you. It starts with what does this mean to you? What are some of your pain points when it comes to managing money? What are your pain points when it comes to saving up for the house you've always wanted or the wedding you wanna have in a few years, things like that. We're just a toolkit to help you achieve those goals.
0: Nice. That's impressive. And as you mentioned, like a lot of this stuff, like I've lived here in Taiwan for 14 years and I remember it took me ages to get a credit card and some of the financial instruments here, even after like almost one and a half decades is still not available to me. Okay. So you've explained how BlueJay works. And one of the things I wanted to ask is, I wouldn't say similar platforms, but similar ideas have a minimal threshold of, and they're usually like in the five, six figure threshold. Is that a limit for BlueJay?
1: we don't have a limit. And I think that's the limit does not exist. (laughs) But I don't know if people will get that joke. But, But anyways, that's actually one of the main benefits of our platform. Now, granted, we do make sure that we are serving mostly accredited investors here. But the investment size doesn't have to be the minimum of 100K, 200K, or sometimes 1 million. And it's often set up this way in the traditional world because uh, administratively, it's kind of annoying to manage a lot of small checks because they don't have the same kind of efficiencies of doing this on the blockchain. But also, secondly, is for a lot of these players managing 100,000 different LPs that are investors is something that is not really within their wheelhouse where right? they're used to the same institutions with the same large pockets of money. So we basically make it easier for people to almost make an entry-level investment into this asset class. Even if, let's say, they do have 100K of investable capital, do you really want to put 100K in right away before you been you're doing? So there's a bit of data. Let me share this because it's from other platforms, not just ours. Some seen that people will put in 50 bucks, 100 bucks, on the first and second opportunities and then suddenly on the third one people will put 50k so that <laughs> you're like oh wow okay so this person wasn't just a small fish investor uh, even though they were like putting in like little amounts of not significant amounts of money into the product and maybe you saw at first out oh, their small investor but actually they were just testing the product it's part of the onboarding experience to level up the funds that you put in when you have to put in 20k right away you just might not invest at all because you're like that's a lot of money to just play around with it but if it's less then i would be happy to do so so on one hand it is an accessibility thing right allowing people who they have investable capital but not 20 million sitting around allow them to invest 10k or 5k or whatever amount that's meaningful to them but on the other hand it's actually just mirroring human behavior around this truly is right so that's why we don't have a set minimum in there to be able to capture a new kind of set of users. Okay,
0: I know, as usual, you know, like we scheduled this quite a few weeks ago. And I know a lot of our users checked out BlueJay Finance, checked out the platform. And I know one of the most common questions we had was like, How are you finding these credit opportunities? Are you going out and searching for them? Is it through contacts you've made in Singapore?
1: I think it's a little bit of everything. I worked in fintech before this, in terms of the fintech investors, in terms of people who work in fintech and all of that. They're just part of our network. So it's not very difficult to get to the first few obvious opportunities, at least on the tech side of things. The first one, for instance, like that, they're someone that we were able to connect with fairly quickly. But I think for the other opportunities, it's really just from being intellectually curious about what's going on in the space, right? I just find folks that I think are working on something interesting. Like, I'll give an example. I'm very interested in venture debt. I also think that, so for those who don't know, venture debt is a mixed debt plus equity structure, usually for early stage companies. Not seed stage startups, but Usually series B and onward where there's a steady cash flow that can be used to underwrite. I was very interested in this asset class because equity financing is something that I know is pretty difficult these days. And some companies may not necessarily fit a bank loan or equity. That's only the choice most of the time that you have. But there's this middle ground and new kind of financing vehicle. So I was curious about this. And I think I just asked a friend who I thought may know folks in this space. And I was like, hey, do you have folks that work in venture debt. And then I got connected to two of the like more well-known funds here in Singapore. So really, if you're interested in learning about the space and following the different types of financing that's coming up, it's not super hard to find folks to find those opportunities. And it doesn't hurt that we're based here in Singapore. So I can just walk out my office. I think within a 10-minute walk, I can probably hit a dozen or so of these <laughs> guys just drinking coffee or taking a berries class just nearby. Like we're right in the heart of it.
0: Perfect. So that's a great place for, from which blue Blutey to start off from. Okay, Sherry, you've explained a lot. I guess my next question would be, so you're based in Singapore. You've mentioned Asia, you've mentioned developing markets. You mentioned your background with India as well, right? You're primarily sourcing these opportunities from Singapore. Is there going to be like extra Singapore opportunities in the future? Are you going to get out to Malaysia or Taiwan or Japan or China at some point in the future. Uh, Is that in in the short to medium term or the long term? Are you just going to focus on Singapore while the global economy is currently in the way it is at the moment?
1: Yeah. So I think for the time being, we're focused a lot on Singapore. And this is A, because like the cost of acquisition on the borrowing front is just a lot easier so it's a walk down the street but also we are also we very much trust the regulatory frameworks also put in place in Singapore everyone that we work with has a CMS license right a capital markets license which means that we trust that their legal compliance kind of frameworks are pretty in shape and that's why I think right now like that is mostly the focus area but we wouldn't rule out expanding to other markets To be honest i don't really know the taiwan market when it comes to private market assets very well but i've dabbled a little bit in the hong kong market just because i was there actually recently for one of the conferences i was checking out what like hong kong being bullish crypto looks like but there's some interesting funds out there too there's there's guys that are also doing venture debt. there's structured financing firms and a lot of them even though they're based in hong kong and licensed in hong kong they do have presence in southeast asia or other parts of asia as well so To me, Singapore is the first obvious choice. And then Hong Kong also has this like Pan-Asia type of presence. And generally speaking, like solid regulatory framework as well. That would be, I think, a natural next place to potentially look at. But I think for now, like, we're not worried about tapping the ceiling of capital right now in Singapore because the opportunities are really here.
0: So I guess this is also just a me question. Are you doing like community calls or that sort of stuff for Bluejay to like talking to people about if you're onboarding a new opportunity, are you going on the web and saying, hey, this is what, this is who they are. Are you doing any of that kind of stuff? Where can people follow Bluejay and what's going on a weekly or a monthly basis?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's multiple places that you can follow us. So we're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, and probably those are the main places to start. We're very active actually on LinkedIn because again, even though we have a crypto component to our product, we have a lot of users that are not your typical crypto natives or they're new to crypto. They're not like the degens who've used 10 protocols. They are dabblers, right? And LinkedIn has been a very kind of inclusive platform, if you may, that we've tapped into. And we have articles there every single week about private credit. So you can use that as a way to learn along the way generally speaking, we are pretty accessible as a team as well. So if anybody wants to join our community and talk to us more directly, there is a private credit investor group sign up that you can find on our LinkedIn posts. If you sign up there, we'll get your name. We'll probably reach out and have a conversation directly. And it really is just to get to know you and probably ask some of the questions that I mentioned of, hey, how do you what are your money goals? What what are, what kind of investments have you researched into? What are you curious about learning? And then creating that relationship from that standpoint. And then once we have a bit of that conversation, then we can put you into our community and our Telegram group where you can talk to all these experts in private credit to learn, absorb. And so there's multiple ways. But as you mentioned, we we do spend a lot of time talking to people. I think Lots of times when people think about building a company, et cetera, they think of the product. They think about the smart contract side, the deployment, all of that. But I think a big part of building is really just about the users. We've probably talked to hundreds of people to get to the maybe even a thousand, not sure, but I lost track of count. I lost, I'll definitely lost count. But we want to make sure that we are doing the right thing by the user. And it's really not about us and what we think the product should be, but about you and how can this product... Solve a problem that cannot be solved through other products out there in the market today. So, yeah, we try to be out there as much as possible and just learn and hopefully create a two way street.
0: Nice. Oh, this has been amazing, Sherry. You've left a great impression, not just on me. And I'm sure when people are listening to this podcast a week later, they're going to be enjoying it. And the YouTube video, of course. Sherry, just before we end up today's podcast, you've said a lot, you've explained Blue Jay, you've talked about private credit, you've talked about how you started Blue Jay and the iterative process around that. Is there anything else you want to end up today, Sean, any sort of final thoughts, anything you, you're supposed to mention that you haven't mentioned just yet, the floor is yours?
1: No, I think I really enjoyed this conversation. I think maybe the last thing that I will just end on is that I am still very much excited about this space. I know that like the market took another beating, which (laughs) it's hard to believe just because we've been through so much. But like things will get harder till they get better and things will feel like they move really slow till they move fast. That's like a philosophy that I've had, right? Of if you do believe that this is a logical progression of where we as essentially as a society should move, then it almost doesn't matter what the short term variance is going to be in the next year. It matters to your pockets if you're trying to liquidate. But if you're really a true believer, it's not, it's going to be as inevitable as the internet, which I know a lot of people say. But to truly believe it, you almost have to ignore the short term, like setbacks. Of course, where there are lessons to be taken about being responsible with money, lessons taken about like, being a good steward to users, take those lessons, right? But the short-term ups and downs is not a reason why we should not believe in this space. I'm sure you believe in it. I'm sure I definitely believe in it. And a lot of the audience here does. Yeah, just hang tight. I know it's not easy. It's not always a fun time, but we'll get there. We'll make it.
0: We will indeed. Sherry, thank you very much for your time, especially it is like late afternoon or a time. I'm sure oh, i okay. fix it there oh, <laughs> in the evening. As usual, if you guys like BlueJay Finance, if you're interested, I know a bunch of you already checked out the website. Hence the questions we got. Please go follow them. Check out Sherry. Check out Sherry on LinkedIn. Check out BlueJay on LinkedIn. I will put a link that Sherry mentioned into the podcast notes as well. And let me know what you thought about today's episode. I'd love to have Sherry on again in the future, maybe towards the end of the year and see how things are going. Maybe that potential Hong Kong expansion is faster. Who knows? We'll see what happens. And then we will talk to you guys next week, same time next week for another podcast. Thank you. Thank you.